everybody, this is Simone with Blue Ribbon Coalition. I'm the policy director and we are here with the 25th episode of the Defend Your Ground podcast. I'm here with Ben Burr, our executive director. Hey everyone. And we are going to talk about wildfire today, right Ben? Yeah, so I mean, recently in the last year or so, Simone, I mean, you've probably commented on dozens of forest service plans that are all designed (laughs) hundreds okay yeah of plans where the forest is wanting to actively manage the forest they want to do prescribed burns they want to do salvage treatments they want to do vegetation treatments all to address either the impacts of all wildfires that have already happened or to prevent future wildfires from occurring and so it's an issue we're paying close attention to primarily because when we have these wildfires they do impact recreation significantly. In recent years, we've seen entire forests closed for weeks or months where users can't access the forest for recreation because of burning fires or fire risk. Um, And then sometimes permanently. Yes. And so there is a group, we talked about this on a recent episode of the podcast, where we have a group in Colorado that's suing the Forest Service right now because of roads that were closed during a post-fire reclamation period. They never reopened them back up. They now say the roads have reclaimed. And so they've kind of wandered the roads out of the system using the wildfire. So do we think this is a scheme that wildfires are being set to close roads? Is there any conspiracy there? No, I think that wildfires are burning for all kinds of reasons. We've definitely let the forest get overgrown. But I do think there is a lot of pressure after the wildfires burn because when we, we've seen this, like when the forest proposes to do a salvage treatment, they get taken to court by the far radical, far left environmental groups that do not want them to manage the forest. And so once it gets to that point, I do think there is probably a concerted effort to do that in, in order to close roads permanently after a fire. So I don't know that, that, it, that this is what's fueling the growth in wildfires in the West, but I do think that this is a direct and probably intended outcome of what's going on after the wildfires burn, um, especially with what's going on in court. And so one of the, so aside from those projects that we are engaging in, there is a, a case that we've been watching. And a few weeks ago, or even at this point, it's probably a few months ago, you had a group that's called Peer, I believe. They're a group that's previously employed public land managers. So people that used to work for agencies like the Forest Service have formed a nonprofit. Um, from time to time, they do show up with uh, lawsuits where they kind of try to influence Forest Service policy through litigation because they have this insider knowledge of how the agency works. They also they know where the legal vulnerabilities are and so then they go and try to exploit those in um, what are activist lawsuits where they're trying to change policy through litigation. Uh, one of the ones that is that we're watching then is that they've sued the Forest Service over its use of dropping fire retardant out of planes or helicopters or aircraft. And when I first saw this headline, it got me kind of scratching my head. Um, they say that the fire retardant, it causes ecological damage because it is kind of a chemical that they're using to uh, prevent the fire from burning a certain landscape. Um, 
And so, yeah, I mean, we can't assume that if we go drop thousands and thousands of gallons of some chemical on an environment that it's not going to have an environmental impact. But I think the gut reaction of most people is, well... Isn't a wildfire worse? <laughs> yeah, it's like we're, we're making a... We're balancing risks here. Uh, mm. Just completely... And a lot of times when you're using the aerial drops and things... They're doing that for a few reasons. Um, one might be if they're trying to protect homes or private property, that is where you might see air resources deployed. Uh, if they're trying to give additional support to the ground crews, which is really like, if you talk to people in the firefighting business, they'll say, I was talking to this case about a guy that was in, did fires his whole career. And he's like, yeah, the, the aviation-based drops um, are helpful to a point, but any fire that really gets contained and put out is because of the ground crews, the hot shots, the guys on the ground that are cutting so the fire So it just line. helps contain it, but it doesn't help put it out. Uh, yeah, it helps the guys on the ground kind of manage the work they're doing. And so a firefighting event is usually this very well-coordinated thing between all the different resources they have there to fight the fire. Um, what they're claiming in the lawsuit is that also, when you have a big fire burning, you certainly have a lot of public outcry concern and that the forest service often uses these aviation drops because they're dramatic it makes it look like the government's coming in with the cavalry to really put out this fire and so they say it looks like an air show almost that they're out there dropping this red chemical all over and creating these fire lines and that it's really just there as a pr spectacle to kind of show the public that they're doing something um, they claim that the retardant really doesn't prove to be that effective and that it's incredibly costly um, compared to the other types of firefighting resources. And I'm sure you can debate those issues with the folks who fight fires and get different opinions from every person you talk to. My concern with the lawsuit and the thing I kind of want our listeners to ask themselves is, should the Forest Service be able to do this? Should they be able to do what they feel like it takes to put out fires or or should they have to weigh an environmental concern above the risk of the wildfire itself? Because I would argue that the impact of a catastrophic wildfire, in most cases, is going to be far worse than the impact of that small contained area that did receive the aerial drop from the fire retardant. I do believe they already have rules where they aren't supposed to necessarily drop those in riparian areas and sensitive environmental areas and so it kind of just begs the question of, is this an opportunistic lawsuit where the Forest Service had two really bad decisions? One was to let the forest burn and destroy the environment through a fire. And one was to cause an impact to the environment by dropping some chemical fire retardant on the area. The premise of the lawsuit seems to assume that the only reason to drop that fire retardant is because to just cause that impact and it wasn't <laughs> weighed against what could be a greater impact and so we'll watch the case i'm very curious to see how it plays out brc is not involved in it but we follow these things closely because they do all interconnect and my general position is i want the forest service to have the tools they feel like they need to do a good job so I'm curious, though, where does it cross the line? Because if we say, okay, because I agree the Forest Service should you know, have that discretion and have the tools to, to do their jobs, but at what point 
do they have too much discretion to make decisions that goes against the public? You know, like where, where does it cross the line? That's a good question. I mean, I've asked that question to friends of mine who were former Forest Service supervisors. And they said, when it comes to something like fighting a fire, the Forest Service has this really broadly written license to be stupid. Uh, they call it, it's called sovereign immunity. And we did consulting work on some fires that burned a lot of private properties, destroyed cattle ranching operations. And those folks tried to file a tort claim against the government, uh, citing negligence that they did... Um, black boxing, which is where they light a fire ahead of the main fire to try to burn out the fuel before it gets there. But then essentially the, um, the fire that the fire, that the firefighting crews started burned out of control and ended up burning the private property. So they kind of argued that was negligence. They should have consulted with the private property. It was this complicated case, but eventually that got tossed out of court by the judge because they said the forest service does have discretion to, do what has to be done to fight a fire. So I think if they have discretion to just completely destroy someone's personal private property and livelihood and not face really any serious consequences from that, then within the broad umbrella of that discretion, they should have the ability to drop fire retardant in the limited areas of the fire where they feel like it'll make a difference. And so to answer your question, I mean, really the sovereign immunity is the line and the only way you really could challenge their decision is gross negligence i think that the that is probably going to be the standard that this group that's suing over the fire retardant is going to have to prove is that their use of the fire retardant was intentionally negligent that they knew it wasn't going to do anything they knew it was going to damage the environment and that they knew it wasn't going to provide any benefit and then they still went and did it anyway just out of willful negligence. I don't know how they'll prove that. Yeah. Uh, because they're, I think they'll find that there is evidence that there are times where these fire drops have been beneficial. I think they'll find um, the folks I talk to in the industry say that the retardant actually functions like a fertilizer once the once it's burning. So it is a chemical. Yeah, it that. isn't natural, but it it does. At the end of the day, it kind of doesn't have just a categorically negative impact on the environment there's evidence that it actually helps the environment and at least anecdotally so i mean they'll i'm sure we'll find this out in court um and i wish i could say there's a better answer for what that line is but i think the line is that you have a really um when it's coming to something like fighting the fire where the government's given them that broad immunity from their decisions to just do the best they can with the information they have and the resources they have. Uh, you really have to prove willful negligence is currently the line. Whether that's right or wrong is up for debate. I would argue that um, mismanaging the forest to where the fuel loads have gotten as high as they are was, is willfully negligent to an extent. And so if, so for example, if I, if we were neighbors, Simone and I had a garage and let's say we lived in like a shared townhome and I had a garage full of flammable materials and a welding shop in my garage and I I neglect to take to manage those chemicals and things safely in my in my garage and it blows up and blows up your house 
um, that would be a huge problem for me. I'd have a huge liability from you. If you saw that hazard and you reported it to your local county sheriff or somebody, they would have law enforcement authority to come to my house and say, your neighbor reported this. You have created a hazardous condition in your home and it, it creates a risk that it's going to blow up her house. And so you have to mitigate this impact. And uh, that's something that a local government with police authority can manage. If our county governments are, were to go assess the health conditions of our forests and say, essentially, you have, you have a garage full of flammable material yeah. here to the Forest Service, they can say, oh, tough beans. Um, you can't do anything to us. We have the supremacy clause of whatever constitution. You can't, like, we're going to do what we want. And I think that's wrong. I think the local government, if they have the police power to come into my house as a property owner and they force me to mitigate to an impact, land. they should be able to, even if the property owner is the federal government, if they've managed the land to hazardous conditions, then a local law enforcement authority should be able to go in and mitigate those impacts, just like they would with any other property owner. And so there's a lot of debate over Things like that. I think at the end of the day, though, this Forest Service retardant case is an interesting one. I think they should still be able to use the fire retardant. I I think they already, and what they'll prove in the case is they have a process. They've already done an environmental analysis of, I, there's no way they're dropping this stuff on the forest and they haven't gone through substantial yeah. environmental and economic impact This would be a really hard case. For them to and, prove but the thing that's tricky is that you do have it brought by these ex-Forest Service employees, and so they know the inside ball game a little bit. So maybe they know of some like that's hidden true. smoking gun, and uh, they'll see it come out. So it'll be interesting. an interesting thing to watch, but it's one more chapter in the saga of can our Forest Service actually manage the forest, or have we tied their hands in too many different ways that they just really have no path forward for doing it? And yeah. so... Anyway, so that's our that's the first thing we want to discuss. Um, Simone, you've been working hard on this Upper Snake River travel management plan. This is an area in eastern Idaho, just north of BRC's headquarters in Pocatello. Uh, the area around Idaho Falls, Rexburg, and so why don't you tell us a little bit about what's going on up there? Yeah, so Eastern Idaho, we know of several clubs and organizations that frequently use these areas that are proposed for closures too. So this this plan, they've got alternatives, preliminary alternatives, and all of them close hundreds of miles of routes. I mean, it's it's huge closures that we're seeing potentially. And so what we really need is we need the public's help identifying these roads, making sure the inventories are correct. We did get an extension. So we had requested to the BLM, uh, because there's so much snow up there, you can't really ground truth a lot of this. And, and some of the closures are seasonal closures. Some of them are year-round closures. Um, and some of them are closures for motorized use, but it's still hundreds of miles of closures regardless. And so because of all the snow, they did grant us an extension until July 10th. And so we've got some time, but we need to inventory these routes and understand what's there to make sure that these don't get closed. As of right now, I don't think any of the alternatives are good and I don't think they should select any of them. They should 
come up with a true recreational alternative like we always we always recommend that throughout this process they always do varying levels of closures and i call it 50 shades of conservation yeah um (laughs) so it's funny because uh, it wasn't days it was very shortly after they announced this comment period on this travel plan blm idaho the state office posted a big picture of a blm sign with feet of snow and a warning to people to stay off of the muddy roads and the trails and all this stuff. And I'm like, okay, so hold on. We're supposed to go comment on these routes and know about these routes, but at the same time, BLM's telling us not to go use the routes of public <laughs> land. And, and so we're glad they gave us an extension that gives us and others in the area time to really go out and look at what they're doing. Uh, you're right. I looked at all, usually we do see a good range in alternatives where one really closes a lot. One closes very little, and then there's something like middle of the road. This one looks like they all three close different, a lot. Three different options where they close a lot, mm-hmm. and so this is the area. It doesn't include the St. Anthony Sand Dunes, but it's any of the trail systems around that. There's a big trail that I saw in Onyx. They, it's called Bear Run, and that's like the border of this. I don't think they'll close that trail through this, but that kind of just gives you an idea of this area. If this is an area you ride, that's what's getting impacted. The other thing I noticed looking at the maps on this is we've done our kind of preparatory due diligence. It's not just like some big block of BLM land where there's a lot of routes. It's a lot of BLM land that's on the periphery of other agency managed land and private property. And as I've gone through and looked at some of the route closures, there are things in this plan that I don't see often in some of these plans where you have big swaths of BLM land to manage like in Utah. No, it actually has a very small percentage of BLM land in this project area, which is interesting that there's more forest service land in it. Yeah. And so a lot of these routes are the interconnectivity to the other agencies. Um, some of the most curious ones I found have been these routes that are on these orphaned BLM parcels in a sea of private property. And they have these routes and you go zoom in on Google Maps to see what's going on here. Could I, the member of the public, even access this area? And the answer, my guess is no. I bet there are gates on the private property. You can't get in. And this private property is actually just like a private little enclave for the private property owners. But the BLM has routes out there. I bet the BLM can't even get into these routes unless they have permission from the private property owners. And so it'll be interesting to see I'll have to ask some of the locals in the area about how that's how they want that to work. I, I kind of want to ask the BLM about that. Like, is it going to close access to people's private property is what I uh, I think about. the opposite problem is more likely with this one, um, <laughs> that you'll be losing public access to public land because it's completely surrounded and encircled private. by private. And But that also raises an interesting point of discussion that This is not uncommon with BLM land Uh, because of the history of how land was disposed in the West. You had all these acts like the Homestead Act where people would go and homestead property and that some little tracts of BLM land kind of ended up orphaned in the middle of all this private property actually does create a management challenge that BLM can't access their own land except for probably by a helicopter. But sometimes it's intentional, too. They buy up the land around it, and then you become landlocked, the private property owners. Uh, Well, you're saying that the BLM does that? Yeah. 
Yeah, that does happen. I mean, sometimes it's intentional that you have this mismatch patchwork of... Yeah, I mean, with con- like they do do that through the Land and Water Conservation Fund, and a lot, of, and that would, and that can turn into where you have these private property inholders who are the ones in the middle trying to get squeezed out. But in this case, I found that the BLM's in that opposite position, where they have land in the middle of private property, they can't access it, but there's allegedly routes on these properties. You can see them from space, but nobody can really use those. But the private property owners. So Jason Chaffetz had a bill in Congress years ago where he had kind of inventoried, he had Congressional Research Service or somebody inventory, where are all these BLM lands that are orphaned parcels like this that have low public use value, are really difficult to access. And he put them in a bill to kind of dispose of some of this public land so that the BLM wouldn't have the burden of managing it anymore and that if private property owners wanted to acquire it through some policy, they could. And oh, how the environmental groups howled over this, that he was just selling off land to the highest bidder. And the, and it's it's just an example of how dumb these arguments become sometimes. Like in all reality- if, Because if, they if, can't if, manage that land. I mean, if they, they can't really access can't. it, they, they literally what are they cannot supposed to do? go there and manage it. It just gives the private property owners extra land that they get to go yeah it's kind of like the public land belongs to them so if that's the case well let's there should be a way for the blm to kind of consolidate a holding there and not have to manage those little orphan parcels and that exists in a lot of places throughout the west it's usually a small problem most people don't care about it because it doesn't impact them most americans think public land is zion national park or yosemite or yellowstone uh, the vast majority of public land is not. It's an orphan parcel of vacant rural land in the middle of who knows where. I mean, there's there's certainly like hundreds and hundreds of thousands of acres that fall into this category. But the BLM now has to like go through this plan. They have to use time and resources and effort to understand what do we do with these 0.1, 0.2 miles of roads that nobody can access but the private property owners. And that's going to be an interesting discussion with this Snake River plan. But other than that, there definitely are some areas where you have concentrated use, uh, as is the case through a lot of Idaho. A lot of good dirt bike trails seem to be in this area. Um, yeah, there's lots of single track. And so, I mean, we have plans to get up there. We'll get up there and look at some of these routes and see what's being proposed for closure. And this is one of those that if you ever have big plans to get up there to the St. Anthony Dunes and you also want to go explore around the surrounding area, which is when I go somewhere like a destination, like a sand dune area, I I always take a day or some time to also go explore the surrounding area because I like doing both. And so if that's you and you like going to destination areas like this and then also spreading your wings a little bit and seeing what else is around the area because you've made the trip. Uh, you should comment on this area. Definitely the locals should, but because it has those St. Anthony Dunes are an international destination for off-roaders, if you have plans to use those dunes in that area, this plan will affect your future plans. So you should learn about it and add your voice. Anyway, so, well, thank you everybody for tuning in here to the episode 25 of the Defend Your Ground podcast. We'll be back next week with, there is a lot going on. We haven't quite settle down on what we're going to talk about next week, but we'll definitely have some good things to discuss. See you soon.